Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. We exist here at the Leaders' Council to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Nelson Nazareth. Nelson is the Managing Director of of Biogene, a company providing molecular biology products and services. Uh, Nelson, welcome and thank you for joining us. Scott, thank you and thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today and it certainly is a lovely day for it. Now, I think we should start, Nelson, by addressing the elephant in the room here and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast on the morning of June 22nd, 2021 and so we are still living under some form of social restrictions here in the UK and that has been the case because of the COVID pandemic for the best part of the last 14 months now. So looking back over this by and large, to what extent has the crisis affected Biogene and affected your operations? Um, from, from a far part, I think we've been relatively lucky because, in terms of the technology we spent a decade developing, um, we have had the opportunity to put into practice what we've learned over the decade into the provision of a device that is exactly appropriate for not only this pandemic, but hopefully, should we ever be in the unfortunate position of being there again for future pandemics. And I think everyone has agreed that that is exactly the way the world should be thinking. How do we prepare ourselves for the future? So for us, really good. We've had a lot of interest. We're developing a technology and we look forward to being helpful in this crisis and future ones too. So what the pandemic has effectively done here is actually created an opportunity in the marketplace for your solution um, as a business because it's been needed during this time. Yes, it has. Uh, Because it's a very specific type of technology, and of course there's a plethora of these around, and everyone has the same claims of being the best, the fastest, and so on. Uh, The fact that uh, we're able to detect at the point of care, i.e. soft uh, a presumed carrier from passing go is something that's really vital, particularly as you don't need intervention from biomedical scientists or a lab or anyone who's technically proficient in using the system. It's essentially something that can be rolled out using neophyte users and in a very short space of time, preventing the transmission of the disease by stopping people moving out of the circle where they can be treated. It's incredibly interesting uh, stuff, isn't it? And I suppose that looking back over the course of the pandemic in developing this technology and rolling that out, um, I guess you felt that you've learned a great deal from this experience in helping bring that product to market as well. Yes. I mean, we've had uh, uh, enormous interest in the range of products from a number of agencies, uh, but something that we as a company have spent, as I say, a long time uh, using internal funding to get us to the position uh, where we can take this uh, technology and roll it out to where it can be useful and also scaled up. And I think that's the important bit, is the ability to do exactly that. 
And with regards to sort of working practices, um, I assume at this time in some way, shape or form, you've also had to sort of adapt to sort of remote working as well. Is that correct? Uh, actually not. Uh, hmm. We've gone the other way in the sense that since about February last year, when this was beginning to rear its ugly head, uh, we took this decision that we had two outputs. The first one was to protect all the staff within the company. Mm-hmm and make sure this uh, socially distance had gone through a regime of making sure we had the usual hand washing, alcohol washes, et cetera, et cetera. But also a very fundamental way of how we were going to work and keep our staff safe to ensure that we had the resources to carry out the project that we felt might be useful. So we haven't lost a single day either to COVID uh, or other non-normal circumstances since we started the process in February last year. Mm. So for us, uh, we've carried on just the same because we're working just longer hours. That's really, really encouraging to uh, to hear for sure. And with regards to that sort of mental health and well-being side of things, how have your sort of staff um, adapted to some of these changes? Have they embraced working under these measures quite well or has it been a little bit of a challenge in that sense? Well, I think it, that, that's very much uh, an individual thing and we try and attend to those. Because we're an SME, we have the ability to go around and check on people to see if they're behaving beyond the norm. Obviously, there are times when we can't be beyond that, but we have endeavored really working with our uh, employees to make sure that A, they were encouraged positively, and secondly, the pull of getting a technology out to where it was going to be massively useful was something they've all embraced. So I think we've had a win-win situation. We've tried to make sure that if they went for vaccinations, took time off, we're not feeling well that they come in a bit later. We were working a slightly more flexible uh, management policy in looking after our employees because clearly they're the people who are going to take us forward to complete the project we're talking about. Yes, exactly. It is all about your people. They are incredibly important. And um, I suppose it's testament to their efforts that although a great many businesses have faced an existential crisis over this last year, that Biogene has done so well because everyone's clubbed together and worked so well. Um, so with regards to sort of your whole experience of the pandemic, let's say, are you, are you feeling that you've come out of this as a business much stronger for the experience that you've had? Um. Ask me in about uh, six or 12 months' time, Scott, because I think, though I can see the cogs working extremely well here, we'll get the product out. The bit that I can't see is how this technology will be taken up, how it will grow as a business, where it will spread. And the challenges, I think, of what I see as uh, quite a big jump in growth. So uh, I, I think it's very difficult for me to answer that question, but I'm very positive. And I hope that we can get support, and that's the support we need financially to help us get the step change to get into full production mode and ensure that uh, a UK company succeeds in a very competitive uh, environment. Yes, exactly. And we are still somewhat in a state of limbo, aren't we? Because we are still living under some restrictions. All restrictions, hopefully, are going to be removed from the 19th of uh, July. And um, when you're in that sort of period of uncertainty, do you find it quite difficult when you can't plan too far ahead because we're not too sure what's going to be happening with those restrictions coming and going? I agree. I think we're somewhat in a bubble uh, as far as we're concerned as a business uh, because we've tried to bring as much of the technology as we could in-house 
uh, CNC, uh, uh, 3D printing, and so on, to make sure we're less dependent on external influences. And we've seen them where our network of suppliers have either furloughed, increased lead times, increased prices, and made it quite difficult for us to enable us to get the product to market. So that's one part of it. I think the other part that's very important is that we continue pressing to complete our part and then at the same time begin talking to the powers that be worldwide to see whether we can get traction, which is always the most difficult part for SMEs. How do we get traction in a marketplace dominated by multinational uh, conglomerates? Uh, and if anyone could, out there could help us in that, we'd be really delighted to welcome them board. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting time, isn't it, moving forward and into that post-COVID world. And just thinking mm. about what that post-COVID future could hold for yourself and for Biogene, um, where ideally would you like to be this time in 2022 and what direction can you see the industry heading in? Um, I think the first thing is, maybe I sound like the harbinger of doom, I'm not sure whether we're going to see a post-COVID quite the way people imagine, a, a magical cut-off line that says everything is now good, because I believe we'll be living this for some time, whether it be COVID, uh, the effects of post-COVID, or another quasi-pandemic or pandemic. So it's something we get used to working with, I think, shall we say forever, being gloomy. Uh, but at least we're equipped, and we will be equipped to do that in the correct way such that we don't suffer everything that we've seen in the past year or so worldwide. And, and where we would like to see ourselves in 2022 uh, is essentially growing rapidly, getting the field into the field rapidly, and making a contribution, I think, to big areas of the world where the socioeconomic problems we've seen can be ameliorated. I'm thinking about Africa, Asia, particularly places like India, where the devastation caused by this pandemic really is, is something that we've not fully seen and is something that we would love to be able to help with in whatever way we can. That's exactly it, isn't it? Um, it's been talked a lot about by um, bodies such as the World Health Organisi- Organization, mm. for instance, that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And so rolling out solutions and helping those developing countries is going to be so important and something to certainly keep an eye on over the next few months. And hopefully in providing those solutions, it's going to be a story of growth for biogenome in the future. And I do um, as well, Nelson, wish you all of the luck in the world in those endeavours, bringing those solutions into the developing world. And I think as we start to get an idea of what direction the pandemic is going in and sort of how um, everything is starting to shape up in the coming months i'd love to welcome you back onto the program just to catch up on what is going on and hopefully there'll be some really positive news to share then thank you scott i would certainly love to be part of that what you call the post-covid era and hope that uh, we can in some small way contribute globally socially and economically yeah let's certainly hope so thank you again nelson for joining us on the show today it's been a real eye-opener for myself and i'm sure the listeners share that sentiment and also do take care and stay safe with everything still going on and let's hope the better days are ahead of us thank you scott and everyone else bye it was a pleasure for me to welcome nelson nazareth managing director of biogene onto the program today and coming up next on the show we'll be joined by leaders council chairman and former education secretary lord david blunkett who will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 months as well as his hopes for the weeks and months ahead and that will be coming up on the show next
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.